0: Good morning. I'm going to go off script here for a couple of minutes. Not sure why. I'm just going to trust that there's someone present, perhaps it's even myself that needs to hear these words. We sang two phenomenal hymns just now. And there is a fountain was written by William Cooper. I know it's spelled Cowper, but you pronounce it Cooper. He was a friend of both John Newton and William Wilberforce during the abolitionist movement in England in the early 1700s. And Cooper suffered with depression his whole life. And people who study him in theological history ask the question, so what's the story with Cooper? How are we supposed to take him, someone who struggled with so much with believing the gospel he proclaimed and professed? And part of the answer is not. look, we sang Trust in Jesus, right? And sometimes we come to the presence of the Lord with something like a hymn, such as Trust in Jesus, or There is a Fountain, and it's a confessional. I really, truly believe this with my heart and soul. And I am proclaiming this to you through this song. And other times we come to it as a prayer. This is how I wish I was, Father. And that's the answer to how we're to take Cooper. We have to take it the same way that he has to to take them. And sometimes these are confessions of what we truly believe. And sometimes they're prayers to our Father to make us into this. A prayer that I want to be one who truly trusts you. And sometimes we're at the place where we're truly confessing that we do trust him. And so each week with every song that we sing, we find ourselves in one of those two places. We're either confessing this is what I believe or we're praying that this is what I wish was true about me. And both are okay. It's okay to be in both places. Sometimes I'm in both places in the same service. One hymn, it's a confession. And the next one, it's a prayer. Lord, make me like this. And that's okay. So that's how we can sing these hymns, even on the days we don't feel like that's really true about me. If you don't feel like it's true about you, then you're singing a prayer to our Father. All right, John chapter 6, starting in verse 52. This is a slightly shorter passage, but don't be betrayed into thinking that it's less to swallow just because it's shorter. The sixth chapter of the Gospel of John, starting in verse 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, You have no life in you. I'm going to read verse 53 again. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread your fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Oh, Lord, this is a hard thing to hear and a hard thing to swallow. It's kind of uncomfortable to think about eating Jesus and drinking Jesus. Help us, Father, to really understand what you're saying here and what you, Lord Jesus, are trying to tell us. Lord, we desperately need to know and understand this, not just because it's an uncomfortable thing to think about, but because there's something important here that's really important, and So important, we have to figure this out and understand it the way you want us to understand it, Lord. So please open our eyes and open our ears and more importantly, open our minds and open our hearts to be able to understand it and receive it. And and not just sort of accept it, but let us embrace it with strong desire, Father, that you would show us what this really means and why it is a good thing. And we ask it, Lord, in Jesus name. Amen. So, uh, well, let's just, okay, let's just go ahead and just acknowledge this right up front. Eating the flesh of Jesus and drinking his blood is kind of cringy, right? It just, that just, we'll skip that part and come to it later. That's, I mean, that's the way I felt when I read it. It It's like, mm, let's just set that off to the side, put a pin in it, we'll come back to it. This is almost like the main point that Jesus is making in this entire long discussion and dissertation that he gives right there standing in the Capernaum synagogue about him being the bread of life. It's like this is like the main point. It's the crescendo moment, if you want to call it that, in his sermon. And we can't just sort of stick it off the side and leave it. So what do we do with it? Well, we just have to walk very carefully through this. Because listen, it's a reality that because of these words, it was often cited as an accusation against Christians in the first century that they were cannibals. Because John wrote this and they repeated it, people would say they're cannibals, these Christians, because they eat the flesh of their prophet and they drink his blood. So we just have to walk through this carefully and understand something, too. You know, verse 52, it's kind of easy to jump through it and get to the next verse, verse 53, which is like the crux of the whole thing. Right. But there's something very, very important in verse 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? This idea that the Jews disputed among themselves, remember how things were just before these words in verse 52, they were all in love with Jesus. This was the Jesus that fed us out in the wilderness yesterday. Gave us all this bread and all this fish. And it was good. And we all went looking for him and found him this morning in Capernaum. And he's the one that's our, he's, he's like the prophet. We should, yesterday we wanted to make him king. Everybody loves Jesus. But verse 52 is a key transition moment in John's gospel. That's one that's really easy to miss. See, before verse 52, everybody's drawn to Jesus. Everybody's pulled into him and everybody loves him, except the Pharisees, right? But after verse 52, in John's gospel, Jesus is always dividing people. From this moment forward, there are always two groups constantly on display in John's gospel. The ones who see Jesus as the Messiah, the great prophet, and those who deny him and say he is a false teacher leading the people astray. From this moment forward, you can't get away from these two groups in John's gospel. There's always both of them present. At least in every public encounter that Jesus has. Right, His private moments with his disciples, not so much. But from this moment forward, everywhere Jesus goes in public, there's always these two groups. And they're always talking to each other. He's the great prophet. No, he can't be. He leads people astray. And then when Jesus tells us to eat his flesh and drink his blood, it's like, okay, okay, all right. But that's hard enough to kind of absorb. But then he tells us in verse 56 that we have to, Feed on his flesh and drink his blood so that we can abide in him and he in us. He tells us that to abide in Jesus, to abide in him, we have to feed on him. Now, this just seems quite important to me because Jesus says for us to abide in him, we have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And the reason this seems really important is because look how much emphasis John places on abiding in Christ throughout the rest of his writings. I mean, just Look at chapter 15 in John's gospel, starting in verse four. I'm going to read this. It's kind of a long passage. So, but if you want to read, you can join me if you want to read it. It's John chapter 15 starts in verse four. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. As the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Okay, there's a whole lot there, right? And the prerequisite is to feed on Jesus' flesh and to drink his blood. And then if then there's everything that he tells us in 1 John. In first John chapter three, verse 24, he says this, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. So wait a minute, it's not just that we abide in him and he abides in us, the spirit is abides in us and we abide in the spirit because we have to eat and drink Jesus. That's what John says. That's the unavoidable conclusion This is a prerequisite for everything else. And then 1 John chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love of God. That God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Wow, I mean, that that sounds like a lot of good stuff to me. I don't know about you, but it's just a, a lot of really good stuff there that comes when we abide in Christ. Enough good stuff that we should be willing to do what it takes to abide in Jesus because it will be worth it. Well, but there's the catch, right? You'd do what it takes to abide in Jesus. And that means eating his flesh and drinking his blood. I mean, as cringy as it sounds to eat Jesus' flesh and to drink his blood, it's not like Jesus is asking us to eat horseradish and drink castor oil. right? It's not like he's asking us to do that. His flesh and his blood are true food, he says, right? He says it right there that in verse 55, my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. No one describes horseradish and castor oil as true food and true drink. His food is true food. That's not hard to eat and drink because his food is the food that softens the ache of sin and his drink soothes the broken heart. When we eat his flesh, the pain of sin is ebbed away because he takes it away. And when we drink his blood, it soothes the broken heart because he shed his blood to make us whole. And that includes mending the broken heart. So Jesus is the bread that has to be eaten. Verse 53. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Jesus is the bread that has to be eaten. There's just no way around it. Jesus says that his flesh is the bread that he will give for the world. But do we really have to eat his flesh? Are we cannibals like the first century critics accused us of being? This is where we have to understand the difference between the literal giving of Jesus's flesh for the world and the metaphor of eating his flesh. Remember, and this is critical. Jesus makes this statement in the context of Passover. The relying on the bread from heaven to sustain the people of Israel in the exodus from Egypt. He is not saying we are literally to eat his flesh and drink his blood. He is saying, like in the wilderness... When the people of Israel ate manna and drank water from the rock and lived, so also you must eat my bread, which is my flesh, and drink my water, which is my blood, and you will live forever. He's drawing this imagery of the connection between his flesh and the manna that came down from heaven, between his blood and the rock that was struck by Moses, and provided water. But the difference is, is that manna and that water just sustained physical life here on this earth. This bread, his body, and this water, his blood, gives life for eternal life, for the washing away of sin, for the cleansing of our souls. And that's why we have to eat the bread that he is giving us. And his flesh has to be that bread because he has to suffer and die on the cross. Right? We all wish that Jesus' suffering on the cross was less than it was. Right? We all wish that it didn't have to be so brutal. But it did. Every single thing. From the moment Judas kisses him on the cheek... Until the very second, he says, it is finished. Everything that happened had to happen. Every blow, every drop of blood, every cut, every bruise, everything, all of it, every piece, it all had to happen because it was all necessary for Jesus to pay the price for our sins and to be our substitute on the cross. One drop less than what did fall is not enough. We're all struck by the horror of the cross and we wish it was less, but it can't be. If you struggle with that reality, I'm sorry, I understand how you feel wishing it was less, but it has to be that way. And you say, well, why does it have to be that way? Because sin is that yucky. Sin is that awful, that dark, that heavy, that high of an offense against God that everything that happened to Jesus had to happen for him to pay the price fully and sufficiently for us. Think about he takes on the weight of all the sin of all the world of all time. We have plenty of things we can look back at in history and go, wow, those are really dark things, bad things happening. And Jesus had to pay the price for that. He had to pay the penalty of that kind of evil. And we haven't even seen the things that are coming in the future yet. Just when you think humanity can't get any more brutal, it does. Just when you think evil can't come up with any other new ways to do evil, it does. And all those things that we haven't even seen yet, Jesus paid for that through what he suffered. So this is why his flesh is the bread. It pays the price. And that's why he uses this language that we have to eat his flesh because we have to eat his flesh in the same way for deliverance and salvation that the people of Israel ate the manna in the wilderness. So no, we're not cannibals. Because we don't really literally eat his flesh. I just want to, well, yeah. Okay, I can't help myself. This is where the Catholics have a problem, right? The Catholics believe that when you take the bread and the cup, it transforms transubstantiation into the literal body and blood of Jesus. Dude, you're a cannibal. If you really believe that's the literal body and blood of Jesus, you're, a cannibal. Sorry. You're guilty of what the first century critics said. You're literally eating his flesh, literally drinking his blood. But when we recognize it as the symbol and we practice the cup and the bread as the memorial of his sacrifice for us, we're not cannibals. It's a symbol of what he did, not his real flesh and his real blood. So what do we do with this? I mean, it's kind of nice to be able to answer the critics who think you're just cannibals when you talk about eating the flesh of Jesus and drinking his blood. I mean, I don't know. Probably none of you've ever had someone accuse you of being a cannibal because you take the Lord's Supper, right? You don't go home and tell your friends and neighbors, hey, we had the Lord's Supper today. (gasps) You cannibals. Nobody, you probably never had that happen to you. And so why do we even take the time to explain it? Why does it even matter? Well, the accusation may have changed and the circumstances may have changed, but that's all matters because Jesus still divides today. The subject of which the division is about has changed, but he's still dividing. It seems that this contrast between Those who believe in Jesus as our Savior and our Redeemer and those who don't becomes more stark every day. At least it does to me. I mean, many of us feel this divide within our own homes. It's not just the generic divide between the church and evangelical Christians and the rest of culture. Many of us physically feel it and physically experience it within our own homes. Us seeing Jesus as our savior of the world, the one who's redeemed us and those in our house who don't believe to one degree or another and are still looking for their savior, even if it is themselves. So on top of Jesus still dividing people, what is abiding in Jesus even? He tells us to do it and he tells us this is the rewards we get. But what even does that mean? What is abiding with anyone? I mean, I think we can all agree that just living in the same house with someone is not the same as abiding with them. At the expense of being too graphic, we can even agree that just sleeping in the same bed with someone is not the same as abiding with them. That somehow abiding is different. It's a different level of intimacy. We're not just living with someone, but truly abiding with them. It is investing measurable time and quality interaction for the purpose of relational intimacy. That's my definition of abiding. To invest measurable time and quality interaction for the purpose of relational intimacy. To know them and to be known by them. That's the end goal of abiding is to be known and to know. And abiding in Jesus is to know him and to be known by him. Now, the knowing him part is really great, but the him knowing me part, I'm not so sure about that. Because that, you know, as long as I can control the parts about me that he knows, we're okay. But the minute he starts digging his hand into the cookie jar, I don't want him putting his hand in. That's the part that's like, wait, okay, this is enough closeness, Jesus. Thank you very much. I thought I wanted you here, but let's just keep you right here. I don't want you to really know who I am because then you won't like me. See, did you hear that? I said that out loud, didn't I? If you know who I really am, you won't like me. There's the lie. The glory of the gospel is that he does know who we really are. And when he does know who we really are, he still loves us and still receives us. And so when we push back and want to keep Jesus away, it's because we believe the lie that he won't love us if he really knows us. It's a lie. It's a lie. The greatest joy will actually come in letting him into those places we're afraid of. He'll just... Well, the first thing we discover is that he's... Whoa, you're not like running away? This doesn't scare you? Wow, okay, this is new. I didn't expect that. And then we discover that all those things that we've been so afraid of in there, the parts we don't want him or anybody else to know, just starts ebbing away. It's like, why was I so afraid of that? Why was I so ashamed of that? To know him and to be known by him. That's what abiding in Jesus is. And it gives us everything we read in John chapter 15 and 1 John 3 and 4. It is also important to recognize that we, to be walking with him in our daily journey and to be responsive to his spirit in each interaction we have is part of abiding with Jesus. I mean, this responsiveness in the spirit is how we bear fruit for the kingdom, I don't know about you, but most of my interactions with individuals that are of a significant nature were not planned. I didn't wake up and go, you know, today I'm going to talk to so-and-so and we're going to get right to the heart of their deepest fears. That just never happens. It's usually, I'm enjoying my Dr. Pepper and all of a sudden, Yeah, and wait, I wasn't really expecting to have the deep conversation about your deepest fears. Okay, we're going to do this. I wasn't really prepared for it, but I guess we're going to do it anyway. And if I'm willing to do that, if I'm willing to trust the spirit and walk this, get into this, then that's how we bear fruit for the kingdom. And feeding on Jesus, it ultimately means feasting on his wonderful love for us. At the end of it, with all this symbolism of bread and his flesh and water from the rock and his blood. Really, all of those are symbols that just end up leading us to the place of the, look, symbols are supposed to represent something that is actually real, right? That's the purpose of a symbol, to represent something actually real, and the symbols are are actually representing his wonderful love for us. That feeding on Jesus ultimately means that we're feasting on his wonderful love for us, not his flesh. Believing that he is God's only son and that God raised him from the dead and all that's encompassed by believing in his great love for us. That's what it really means to eat his flesh and drink his blood, to enjoy his great love for us. For us. His great love for you. And that. At least as best I can tell. Will take the rest of our lives. Here on this earth. And the rest of eternity too. To fully understand and encompass. The greatness of his love. Let's pray. Lord thank you for your love. Thank you for the way you displayed your great love through giving us your body to save us. Giving your blood to deliver us and redeem us. And I pray, Father, that we would embrace this great love and all that it displays and that we would revel and have joy in it and that our hearts would be overflowing with the fullness of your great love so that we can share some of it with others. In Jesus' name, amen.